You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. I love the Pacific Northwest. This is on top of Mount Hood. That's my fiance, Carly. And that's Mount Hood in the bottom looking from further away. When I was in actually high school, I came out here for the first time, and the first big mountain I ever climbed was Mount Rainier. And that was an awesome experience. If you get a chance to check out the Mount Rainier National Park Wilderness Area, please do, it's really amazing. You guys kind of already heard who I am. Basically, I am a physician, a physician resident training broadly in family medicine, but I really like the outdoors. And I'm a little bit academic in nature, so I've done a lot of research basically on plants, animals, and how they relate to human health, and then how outdoor enthusiasts kind of interact with those people. And I really enjoy it. It's, it's made me really happy and it's been a lot of fun. Um, that's my first learning objective. Find something in your field that you just really enjoy and become an expert at it. Read every article and paper on it. Anytime it comes up in conversation with your colleagues, pipe up and have something interesting and fun to say. It makes you better at the other parts of medicine, and it's just cool. It's cool to have people around you that, that know and are passionate about certain stuff, so find out what your thing is and, and, and dive into it, and it'll be a great time. You'll enjoy your life, and it'll improve your career, and it'll keep you from burning out, which is common. Um, my other learning objectives are to understand how altitude affects human physiology, and in particular, the skin. I mean, the skin is obviously our barrier, and it, it has a lot of uh, things to interact and cope with. I'd also like to review epidemiology in general. Um, kind of my field, and kind of the field of wilderness medicine, is largely around epidemiology and how diseases occur in those populations of people that are out recreating, traveling, going on expeditions, search and rescue folks, all those people and just learn about what's actually happening so we can prepare well for how to treat and deal with those problems. Third thing is gonna be talking about kind of the cool, rare animal bites, um, infections, following interactions with organisms and things like that. And then we're just gonna review some just general interesting cases in, in wilderness-specific skin infections. The mountain environment is rugged. This is the Y. Kular on uh, Pikes Peak in Colorado. And you can see, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of hazards. Um, as you go up in elevation, every 100 to 150 meters, you get about 1% increase in ultraviolet radiation. And we know that, that ultraviolet radiation has, um, you know, detrimental effects on the skin, and, uh, you know, most commonly with sunburns, but also the pathogenesis of uh, skin cancers and other, other pathologies. Um, it can be highly variable, too, depending on where you are because of holes and differences in the ozone layer and thickness. Particularly at the equator, the, the amount of ultraviolet radiation is very strong. And that's because the atmosphere is actually a little bit lower at the equator. Um, last time I was in Peru, I walked around on the beach with my shirt off for like an hour thinking like this is going to be fine and I just destroyed my skin doing that so be very careful about any travelers or yourself going to the equator or, or higher in elevation and use your sunscreen and protect yourself protect your skin
this is Rocky Mountain National Park. That's a great place. It's in Colorado. Take a look if you get a chance. Temperature falls and weather, weather increases as you go up higher. For every 150 meters you go up, temperature drops about one degree Celsius or about two degrees Fahrenheit. While the wind speed, temperature, precipitation, just general exposure all increases. At the same time, the humidity decreases. So you've got a really dry environment with really high amounts of ultraviolet radiation. This is Capitol Peak. That's looking at it from the top of Snowmass Mountain. This is right by Aspen, Colorado. It's another good place to check out, particularly if you like high mountain environments. Atmospheric pressure drops. It's a hypoxic place at high, at high altitude. For every 110 meters you go up, you lose about 1% of your oxygen. And you can see at 4,000 and 8,000 meters, you're breathing a lot less dense air than you were at sea level. And that's going to affect your body's ability to cope with, with skin disease, with all disease. It's going to affect your body's ability to heal. It's going to make it difficult for you to perform the same way you do at low elevation. And by that same token, it's going to be difficult for skin problems to heal well. On top of all those factors, there's other human factors involved. This is a picture of one of the crowded traverses on Mount Everest. And it, it just blows my mind how many people they cram onto these routes and these base camps. I was talking to you guys about Mount Rainier earlier. Camp Muir up there, if you were to go up in about two weeks here, once the mountaineering season gets into full swing, it will be crowded. Crowding leads to sanitation issues, especially in places like Mount Everest. On top of that, people are just exhausted. They're not sleeping. They're walking all day. Their bodies are not in good position to heal. Furthermore, people beat themselves up when they go out and try and have fun outside. I don't know if you've ever done this. For instance, I went on a trip last week, a, like a big hiking trip. I think I was like a mile in, and I looked down at my legs, and they were just ravaged. There were cuts all over the place. And I looked at my hand, and it was bleeding. I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I been doing out here? It's almost like you go back to a kid state. I mean, I'm not out there sticking my finger in my butt like the kids are doing, but certainly I'm about as dirty as you can be, and, and my finger does go into my nose sometimes, and, it's, and I'm blowing my nose in my sleeve, and there's cuts all over my body. I mean, you are just a night-eye for infection out there. Take a look at your body after your next outdoor trip, and you'll be like, holy cow, what happened to me out there? This is a couple pictures. That's an abrasion um, just on a ski hill. Fall down, the back of your shirt comes up, and then you kind of tear up the whole back of your skin there. That's a picture of one of my friends who was doing some crack climbing. I don't know if you've ever seen rock climbers when they kind of put their hands in cracks like this, but you can see her kind of perfect bilateral abrasions on each hand as a result of that. A couple more injuries. Um, the one on the left is a really bad, sorry, that'd be your right. Or wait, no, still left. Um, that's just a really bad stub toe. Um, the guy on the, the other side was actually a smoke jumper. That was in um, the Sierra Nevadas in California. I was at an emergency department working in Fresno, California, 
And that gentleman was in full, full firefighter smoke jumper gear, and a log rolled onto him and pinned him in place. And so those burns occurred through his full firefighting gear outfit. Um, when people were going out there not just to have fun, but to actually deal with objective hazards like fires or to work as, you know, in a park or dangerous environment, uh, the, the pathologies that you see just go way up, particularly in forest fires. And you can believe that we're also quite worried about that gentleman's airway on top of his burns and his skin. First question. I guess it was kind of a long question, Stem. I think the tests that we do in, mex in medicine just kind of make us have to write paragraphs for questions. But take a, take a read at that. Basically, you're up high. Somebody gets an infection. Two days later, the infection hasn't really changed, even after using appropriate antibiotics. In, and in general, you know, what, what's an appropriate antibiotic for a general skin infection? It's going to be something that covers staph and strep. Not, not, MRSA strep, not MRSA staph, but just general MSSA. So Keflex is, is usually a really good option to cover those things, just like we were talking about in the PEDS lecture that we just did. So what should you do? Two days, appropriate antibiotics, you're up high. What's your next move? Pachamama is one of the uh, Incan gods. Very important, God of the Mother Earth. I'll press that sooner next time. Forgot about the 10 seconds. That's right. Now, honestly, E would, would not necessarily be wrong depending on the circumstances. Depending on your clinical judgment, your worry that, that we're not getting good enough coverage. But in general, like we said, the wounds, wounds and problems just don't heal well at high elevations. And because of that, sometimes you need to descend. It's that very reason why they keep hyperbaric oxygen chambers at the base of Mount Everest, not just for skin diseases, but for a myriad of other diseases, pulmonary, um, you know, all sorts of things. Giving yourself more oxygen, living at sea level where we were designed to live, gives our bodies better environments to heal and we do better. So if somebody's not doing well at high altitude and they have a pathology, really any pathology, it might not be a bad call sending them down a little bit, seeing how they do. Basically, all that first part of the talk was to, was to kind of explain to you how much of a, well shoot, uh, how much of a nightmare the mountain environment is for your skin. It's dry, it's got a lot of UV radiation, it's exposed, you get a lot of wind, you get a lot of sun, you get a lot of everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's harsh. Um, they've done a lot of experiments on our immune system to look at how that environment affects it. And in particular, our adaptive immune system, so our, our T cells, our B cells, are quite affected by the hypoxic environment. And CD4 cells, which are kind of uh, the workhorse, or at least as, as far as we understand now, kind of the workhorse for um, um, cell-mediated immunity are particularly affected. It doesn't really have a lot of effect on our innate immune system, our macrophages, neutrophils. Interestingly, 
um, I think they kind of evolved, in, or at least the thought is they evolved in somewhat of a hypoxic environment um, millions and millions of years ago, and, and they've, they've really uh, uh, kept that design and can function in a relatively hypoxic environment. But since really all these cells are talking to each other and the adaptive immune system oftentimes is educating and, and calling upon the innate immune system to do a lot of its dirty work, kind of your whole immune system gets affected. Um, we don't really understand all the details of that, but rates of bacterial infection, severity, resistance, all those things seem to be worse at higher altitudes. At the same time, this is not just a infection issue. This is a entire breadth, or at least uh, at least several diseases that tend to get worse in these high altitude environments. For example, Raynaud's. Raynaud's phenomenon, as you guys know, gets much worse when it's colder, which in the mountains it's colder, and at higher elevations. This is one of my friends on a ski trip. He's just, you know, up in the cabin, it's pretty warm, and her Raynaud's is just flaring up. Raynaud's is just one of many diseases that you can see get quite a bit worse with altitude, and we'll talk, we'll talk a lot about those and, and, and get into more detail with that. All this being said, we still need to go up into these mountains. It's beautiful up there. It's peaceful up there sometimes. Sometimes it's less peaceful. But it's worth it. And in order to get the beauty and the wonderful mountain environment, you've got to take the pain with it. So please don't let me discourage you or any patients from going up. Just be ready to, to counsel and talk to your patients on how to do it safely. And I'm going to help you do that now. So skin injuries, like I said, are extremely common when you're out playing around. These are some different studies. Granted, they're all small studies, but they're just basically counting how many people are having skin injuries. The, t the column on one side talks about guide medical director reports, and the other one is from hospital reports of people who have come back or been picked up by search and rescue. And you can see high rates of skin injury. I think those are probably greatly understated. Those are probably like serious things that required suturing or something, but if you talk about just minor scrapes and, and lacerations and blisters, much higher. This is just one study of hikers coming back from a hike in, in Hawaii. Granted, it was in volcanoes, so you're going to have some pretty rough rock that's going to be cutting people up, but really high rates of all these things. So, I mean, this is the norm. The norm is to go out there and, and have these injuries, and that's going to put you at greater risk for infection. As far as cuts that become infected, it's still quite high. I mean, 1% to 4% of people going out on these backpacking trips are getting a cellulitis. That's a lot of, that's a high percentage for healthy people going out and hiking around. So, I mean, keep that in your thoughts and in your mind. People, gotta t people have to take good care of their skin to keep themselves from getting skin infections when they're playing around outside. Oh, that's on, uh, that's on top of Salcante Pass on the way to Machu Picchu. It was, just, it was just the two of us, but we had three mules and three guides. And my gosh, when you go doing fun stuff in South America, it's amazing how inexpensive that type of service is. So think about that. So I've done a lot of 
uh, I, I did kind of a meta-analysis basically on all the studies I could find relating to injuries people have when they have fun outdoors. And the reason was I had all this data of, from all these people I'd surveyed for what they actually bring with them, and I had no way of knowing how to tell them if what they were carrying was wrong or right. And obviously, I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to be an expert opinion type thing. I wanted to be an actual epidemiology-like type thing. So I took all the studies I could find, and I, I pooled them and saw what was actually happening to people when they go outside. What injuries were they having? What problems were they having? Typically, it was not surprisingly musculoskeletal injuries and skin problems. And so I then used that information along with sort of practice guidelines and, and, and best care guidelines to assemble a, a first aid kit that you would bring with you for a one to two day trip to cover those things. And this is the result. You can see a lot of things have to do with skin. I mean, this is what comes up out there, and so this is basically is more or less your guy's field, which is kind of cool. I mean, it's my field too, but I mean, this is, this, is, uh, this is what I would recommend bringing. A pair of rubber gloves. Anytime you're gonna be dealing or helping other people, you're gonna wanna to use appropriate body substance isolation, both for your and their protection. Lightweight splinting materials are for the MSK stuff. Medical tape is great stuff. Duct tape is also amazing stuff as well. Um, I use a syringe that can generate 6 to 12 PSI. I fill it up with water, and when someone gets a bad cut, I spray the heck out of it with, with just potable water. And that does a really good job cleaning it out. Tweezers and needles to remove foreign bodies. Um, I absolutely love tissue glue. Uh, especially when you're outside. If you are someone who sutures and you want to carry all that equipment with you, that can be nice as well for bigger cuts. But glue really goes a long way. Even though like the Dermabond and the medical grade stuff is, is better because it doesn't cause as many contact reactions and problems like that, you can still generally use the hardware cyanoacrylate glue. You know, keep it in your backpack and next time you get a little cut, put a little drop on there and you'll be amazed. It, it provides an excellent wound healing environment, keeps it clean, and it keeps the tissues approximated well. And I apologize if you do, or if you are one of those rare people that get a, a skin reaction to it. If you do that, then please don't use it again. Use the Dermabond or something else. Vaseline, um, like the, the gentleman was saying two lectures ago, I mean, very low incidence of of dermatitis from Vaseline, or he said none, I, I don't know if there's none, but very, very low, much lower than your antibiotic-based uh, based products. And so, so anytime you get a cut, I, you know, and, and you're not going to be lapping up all the dirt around you, I'd put a little bit of Vaseline on it. Ad, adhesive bandages are interesting. Surgeons have done so much research on this bandage, this bandage, which one works better, which one prevents infection, and as far as the last studies I've seen, none, no bandage has ever been shown to be better than another bandage, or even no bandage in general for preventing a wound infection. Because it's such a dirty environment out there, I, I recommend something just to keep dirt and stuff off of it, but that's kind of the thing. So if anyone ever yells at you and says, what a, what a fool you are, why'd you put this bandage on it? You can just know that they're wrong, because nobody knows. And then blister treatment, paper tape, duct tape, 
those things work great. As far as medications go, mostly just stuff for, for pain, because these things hurt. Um, Tylenol and ibuprofen combined is like the best stuff around for treating pain. Much better in even studies than opiates, so that should be your go-to. And then, of course, diarrheal, or diarrheal illness and uh, kind of flu-like illnesses are also common, so bring that stuff too. And in particular, your rehydration packets. Oh man, duct tape can save your life out there. My toes get really raw and blistered, and so I wrap some duct tape around it, and that's a, that's a game changer. Machu Picchu. So how do, how do I translate this to patients? I treat them like, I treat anybody that's going out to go on a big trip. Like if they come to me and they say, I'm doing a big trip, even if they're going to you know, Europe and they're just going to be doing a lot of walking in the city. But especially when they're going on a big hike, a big outdoor thing, a mountaineering trip, I treat them like a diabetic. And what that means to me is I really counsel them on their feet and the importance of taking care of the skin on their feet. At every visit I have with a diabetic, I say, take your shoes off. I need to see your feet. And I check their feet. Because if they have cuts on them and they're not being taken care of, there's a, and there's a good chance they could lose that foot. The same thing, but less risk, obviously, goes when you're out walking around. Like, if you get a cut on your foot, you can't really walk well anymore. And it's just going to get worse and worse. So you really need to take care of them and prevent them. How do you do that? You make sure they have footwear that they've broken in is comfortable for them and they can walk well with. Make sure they have proper socks that wick moisture. You know, cotton is not going to be your go-to fabric out there when you're hiking around for long periods of time. Um, make sure they bring equipment to treat common things. They obviously may not need the whole first aid kit, but you know, bringing some paper tape or some duct tape to help with blisters is going to be important because those come up a lot. For longer trips, I might consider giving them some antibiotics just because infections are, are pretty common, 1% to 4%. Um, and if you're abroad or something and it's hard to find good antibiotics that you know or, or what they say they are, I mean, send them with a little bit to have with them and instruct them on how to use them and when to use them. And then make sure they have a tetanus vaccine. Um, every 10 years or every 5 years if someone gets a cut. But that's important. I mean, we don't think about these diseases that we vaccinate away, but man, tetanus is devastating. So if you send somebody out that hasn't had a tetanus shot and they get a bad cut and get tetanus, I mean, that could be potentially fatal and that's a preventable disease. So keep tetanus in the back of your head. I know it's something I forget about with patients all the time. Oh man, if you feel crepitus in somebody's foot, that means gas underneath the skin, that's really, really bad. This is a picture of a woman who also lived up in the Sierra Nevadas. She is no surprise a diabetic. And you can see both dry and wet gangrene on her toes. And on the CT image next to it, you can see gas underneath her tissues. That is a gas-forming, necrotizing infection. That is an emergency. That's a surgical and antibiotic emergency. And please, if you feel gas underneath someone's skin, even if, the, even if the, the skin lesion does not look particularly bad, that is an absolute emergency, and please get them to the hospital immediately. Um, it was kind of interesting. On the last talk, you know, she was talking about sending people to the emergency department, 
if you're uncomfortable with something, you know, and you feel in your gut that something seems wrong, just send them over. It makes me feel bad sometimes because the emergency departments have become so expensive, but you, you kind of have to because the, the, the worry of missing something is too much, particularly if you see something like that where there's gas or an infection looks really bad, send them over because they might need stronger and more, more aggressive treatments. Um, if someone is a diabetic, if somebody has risk factors, for instance, if they take prednisone every day for some sort of autoimmune disease or something, you're going to think about worse organisms. You're going to think about pseudomonas, MRSA, and resistance. I heard a lot about wound cultures this morning, and I really also like wound cultures. I don't think they're useful when you have sort of a, just a straight cellulitis and there's no cut or fluid and you just kind of rub it across the top of the skin. I don't know how useful that is because you're probably just going to grow staph and strep because it grows on our skin. But if you can get fluid or you can get some like shavings off, send it for culture. They may not help you, but when they show up at the hospital later or they show up to the next person and they can find access to those cultures, I mean, that, that's a lifesaver. And it just allows us to be better. I mean, if, we're, if, if we bring everyone in and treat them with Augmentin, which is, you know, um, kind of stronger up the line, that's not as good as if we could treat them with a, with a narrow antibiotic and we don't. So, um, so get the cultures. Like we've been saying, most of the infections are going to be staph and strep. But there are a lot of other interesting infections that can occur they're much less common, but they're really, really interesting and they're really fun. So we're going to talk about them now. All right. You guys did it. Great job. Paper tape. We, you know, we think about these big RCTs and comparing cardiac drugs or some, something crazy with a million people, but there's also some small interesting ones, too. And if you look in the literature, you can find little, fun, interesting RCTs. And who knows, maybe you'll even do one someday. That is Denali in Alaska. It's apparently pretty rare to get to even see it, so I was pretty happy. This is um, from Denali State Park, looking at Denali National Park across the highway. All right, animal exposures and skin infection. Like I said, very uncommon, but very interesting and very fun. This is a table showing animal fatalities yearly from the most common animals that cause fatalities. I want you guys to appreciate how low these numbers are. Mosquitoes win. Worldwide, mosquitoes kill I mean, I see different estimates, but probably between 750,000 to a million people as a result of their vector illnesses. Here in the U.S., 100 people is not too bad. Um, mammals, mostly vehicle strikes, 76.9. The actual animal that kills the most people, like, I guess, straight up, like they're actually attacking them and not spreading disease or, like, running into their vehicles, is actually bees and hornets and wasps. Social insects... You know, they talk to each other, one gets mad, they release hormones or pheromones, and then they swarm, and people get massive doses of, of the, what's normally a, a very safe venom, and they can get anaphylaxis or organ failure, and they can die. 
ticks are the most common are the most common vector of illness here in the United States. They cause more disease via vector illness than mosquitoes, which is definitely not the case worldwide, but here in the higher hemispheres it is. Spiders cause very, very rare fatalities. Mostly children, mostly small people, little people, or old people who are sick, and it kind of pushes them over the edge. Healthy young people like yourselves tend not to ever die from, from any spiders in the United States. Venomous snakes are kind of the same deal. Um, we've got three main groups of venomous snakes here, in, or um, well, depends on how you classify them, but we've got several diff few different varieties and very few actual fatalities a year. Worldwide, probably 50,000 people die from snake bites every year. But here in the U.S., it's quite a small number. Scorpions even, smart, even, even less. Even though there's scorpions all over the United States, the only real dangerous one in the U.S. is the bark scorpion, and that lives kind of down in the um, Arizona southwest area. And those are also mostly going to be children that get stung and die from the, from the stings. Basically, if you avoid these animals, you're not, you're not going to have problems. And I think most people that do have the problems with these animals are the ones that are intentionally not avoiding them. And I know that. When I was a little kid, you know, I'd try and catch stuff all the time, and I was by far the one who got bit by animals the most of anyone in my family because I was the one going out trying to get them. Uh, it's kind of the same thing. Like the people in the U.S. that get bit by snakes are the ones that are like the snake handlers. You know, I was in Appalachia and I felt compelled to take up the serpents. Or I'm like kind of a, you know, a funny guy and I have like 10 aquariums in my house with several different very venomous snakes in them and that's my thing. Those are the people that tend to get bit. Um, when you're suspecting what bacteria the infection is, you're going to think about two things. One, staph and strep. That's what grows on our skin. That's what causes skin infections. Two, what grows in the animal's mouth? And that's going to be the thing that you're not necessarily going to know off the top of your head. But there's, there's literature and stuff to help guide you if you do. You can basically search on PubMed uh, a particular animal in a bite, and you'll probably find some interesting bacteria that got cultured out of a bite or two as a result of that organism, or as a result of that animal. And there's some interesting stuff out there. Um, the most common bites in the U.S. are going to be dogs, cats, and other animals that live with us in the house. Um, as you know, cats, you know, I don't want to get into the thing, cats and dogs, which one is a better companion animal, but cats are certainly the dirtier one as far as the bites go. Uh, pastorella is a common one for cats, but bacteroides and some other anaerobes are also quite common. Uh, most wounds from these bites are going to end up growing mixed flora, so your culture is going to have a few different organisms growing out of them, and you'll see that. I, culturing is also just kind of fun. It's just fun and interesting to see like what's actually growing there. I, I don't know. Maybe I enjoy it. I don't know if you guys do. Um, this is a study out of uh, Germany, I believe, and they just basically looked at dogs, humans, cats, and where they were bitten and, and, and saw how many went on to be infected. As you can see, cat bites. It's kind of dirty, you know? The cats are... <laughs> They've got a, uh, an oral flora that is particularly uh, um, detrimental to the skin. Humans are number two. Dogs are number three at uh, only 5 to 25%. Um, overall, pretty low rates of infection when you put them all together. Uh, the hand 
is more commonly infected. A classic, a classic infection that, that I see, particularly in like the ED or even in clinic I've seen before, is the, the guy who punched the other guy in the mouth. And then he ends up, you know, three or four days later with a skin infection on his hand. And that's just, uh, you know, it's just sort of uh, what comes around goes around, right? Um, arms, legs, and then faces very, very um, less likely to become infected. There's great vasculature around your face, and things tend to heal well. But by the same token, when they don't, things can quickly become emergencies because you've got lots of vital structures all around here that you know, have things to do with vision and hearing, and all those different things can be invaded from things like periorbital or orbital cellulitis. And so you've got to be very careful when you do have a skin infection on the face and watch that very closely. There's also attacks in the U.S. by large mammals. Um, these are scary. We love to think about these things, but they also are quite rare. And even finding numbers as far as the whole U.S. goes for how many occur was difficult. So you can see that these are, these are sort of um, studies that were based on specific areas. As far as mountain lions go, very rare to be attacked by a mountain lion, but very high chance of fatality if you are attacked at 20%. Um, whereas much less with like a, a American buffalo. You can imagine with any of these attacks or, or kind of maulings or whatever you call them, it's again going to be the people that are getting closer and closer to the animal, trying to take a good picture of it. Maybe exception with the bears and walk and it's kind of startling it within, when it's with its cubs, or the mountain lion who may in fact be starving and may in fact be interested in eating you. There was a a case earlier this year that made a lot of news in Seattle or in Washington State about a mountain lion who, who attacked two people and turned out to just be very, very hungry and tried to attack one and one person got away but then it actually attacked the friend. So mountain lions are maybe the one big animal that does kind of scare me. And um, sometimes when I'm hiking at night in the woods alone I get pretty scared for mountain lions <laughs> as a result of this research. <laughs> um, Fish hooks in the skin are also really common. Um, I just, there's, it's common enough that, that if you go out and, and mess around a lot, you'll see it. Um, there's two kind of good ways to do it. If you have some lidocaine, that's best. And I, I do recommend keeping some lidocaine with you in your tackle box if you fish a lot. But you can put a little bit of lidocaine just where the hook goes in kind of underneath it. And then you can usually pull it straight out with, with minimal pain, especially for kids. Um, but if the treble hook is actually pretty big, sometimes it's better just to bring the hook all the way through, take a, take a pliers and cut the hook, and then you can slide it out without having that treble injure somebody. Um, all right, next question. You're in the room, at home sleeping, and you wake up and there's a bat. You find a lesion. You don't know how you got that lesion. What should you do? Perfect. Has anybody ever dealt with rabies? Or ever had somebody ask them about rabies when they come to see them? Nice. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of those things that we vaccinate for now. You know, globally, 
there's still 25,000 deaths from rabid dogs biting people around the world. Here, because of our pet vaccination, we've essentially eradicated it from dogs. And now it only lives in, in vector, in basically mammal vectors, most commonly bats, but also other small kind of wild mammals occasionally can, can have it as well. Um, so what is post-exposure prophylaxis? It starts with copious, it starts with, it with basic good wound care. Copious, copiously irrigate it with potable water. You can also use normal saline, but normal saline hasn't been shown to be any better than normal potable tap water. Um, they do also recommend using a virucidal solution like iodine on the wound as well to try and kill any of those viruses that are still sitting on the wound. You're supposed to start the uh, four course of the rabies vaccine and then also get immunoglobulin. And what the way they recommend doing it is you get the rabies vaccine in the opposite side that you got the bite on, and then you actually inject the immunoglobulin directly into the wound and then kind of up the wound path slightly as well to try and, um, to try and wrap up the virus and stop it from getting to your central nervous system. For the preventative vaccine, you only need the three courses of it. But man, this thing is expensive. Uh, it's, it's like over $1,000 for the course. And um, it's nice to have if you're going to areas with a lot of rabies in it. But it's also pretty expensive for a lot of folks. So you kind of have to be a, a, a good epidemiologist and decide what's the risk and benefit of rabies on this trip or on this travel and, and decide is it worth 1000 bucks to get the rabies vaccine or is there low enough risk that we don't care about it? So that is in Clear Creek Canyon, and I, I do some rock climbing, and I was climbing up this crack, and I looked in the crack as I was about to put my hand in, and I saw about eight bats just nestled inside that crack, and I was like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> so I didn't put my hand in it. But, you know, you got to be careful about stuff like that, and, and especially with, with climbing. I've, I've heard a story of a gentleman who actually did stick his hand in a crack with a bat and got, got bit and then did require the post-exposure prophylaxis as a result. Like I said, small mammals, uh, foxes, coyotes, prairie dogs, I'm sure just about any of the small mammals could potentially be vectors. Um, and the thing is, when people do get rabies, it's a universally fatal disease. I think I've read a couple cases in the literature where people survived, but they're not normal people after that. I mean, it really, it, you, I would think about it as a universally fatal disease, and that's why getting all over the post-exposure prophylaxis is very important. As far as snakes and other reptiles go, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, as far as bacteria, and there's a lot of differences in opinion as to whether or not people should get antibiotics prophylactically for non-venomous snake bites or if they should be watched. I will say from a personal standpoint, I got bit a lot by snakes as a little kid because whenever we'd go traveling to Florida, I'd try and catch them and every time I caught them, they'd usually bite me. Um, and I never got any infections from them. But a lot of people do. Um, these are some of the organisms that I saw come up a lot from the cultures that I could find. Enterobacteriaceae and Enterococcus fecalis, but the number of organisms that, that grew out in general was massively broad. So I think the lesson is, is that if someone does come to you and say, I got bit by a snake, and if that wound looks at all like it could be in, in early or in frank infection, 
treat with a broad spectrum antibiotic, like your Bactrim, your Ciprofloxacin, something that's going to cover a lot of different organisms. And if you can, get a culture, obviously. Um, insects usually are more of a nuisance, but those bites can become secondarily infected as well. Because, because of the risks for vectors when people go to travel to more of the tropical areas, you absolutely want to make sure that they're set up with an excellent um, bug uh, spray and bug prophylaxis plan to keep from being bitten. Um, these, are, these are some of the best and recommended uh, chemicals to use uh, and the correct percents. 20 to 50 percent DEET, 20 percent Picardin, 30 percent oil of the eucalyptus are all really good um, bug barrier products. Um, DEET has actually also been shown to be safe in the second and third trimester of pregnancy. There was a large, it was actually, I actually read it, I can't remember all the details, but it was a large study in Southeast Asia, and it was actually pretty well done. So, you know, I think certainly using DEET, but if you were in an area that potentially had mosquitoes for whatever reason and you found out you were pregnant, I mean, it, it's, it's almost one of those things where even though those other agents have not been shown to be safe, they've also not been shown to be harmful. And certainly viruses like Zika and, and, and any of the hemorrhagic viruses and malaria are going to be extremely detrimental to a pregnancy. So it's always going to be a risk-benefit um, deal. And if you can use DEET, but probably wouldn't be a bad idea to use one of the others because there hasn't been shown harm, just hasn't been shown to be safe either. Who here has been to British Columbia? Oh my God, it is so beautiful. If you have time, head north from Seattle because it is absolutely gorgeous. The coastline is essentially a rainforest. It's got jugged mountains coming straight out with deep oceans all below. And you've got this rainforest environment. So generally when I go up mountaineering and hiking, I'm up in high elevation, I'm in Colorado, I'm in Idaho, I'm on a glaciated peak like Rainier. But when you get into something like this, and you're in a rainforest for most of the time, and it's not very high elevation because it's right off the coast, you're going to see a ton of bugs. I mean, it is like full-on rainforest. And so I packed like a little thing of bug spray, and it just wasn't enough. So we found ourselves just wrapped, wrapped in clothing to try and protect ourselves from the bugs. So it is absolutely, I mean, do not forget your bug spray. Do not forget your sunscreen. You guys probably know that. Well, you, the sunscreen you guys probably know, but the bug spray is probably not as common for you guys. But those two things, oh my gosh, can be a life sector, a lifesaver. Um, like I was saying earlier, mosquitoes. Probably a million or more worldwide deaths as a result of vectors. But here in the U.S., ticks are actually spreading more disease than, than mosquitoes are. Anyone know what the deer tick causes? Lyme disease, good. All right, next question. Somebody comes into the clinic and the word tick is mentioned. Yes, doxycycline. You guys have passed the... Uh, the conference. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, man, the tick-borne stuff is really interesting to me. And 
all of the all of the named diseases, anaplasmosis or lichiosis, Lyme disease, rickettsial illnesses, Rocky Mountain spotted fever two, loremia, all of these can cause rash. And really interesting stuff too. You see, um, tularemia is the one on the fingers. That's kind of the spot at the bottom of the screen. You can see the the um, spotted fever or rickettsial illness. And um, Rocky Mountain spotted fever is the kind of general viral exanthem at the bottom. And then, of course, Lyme disease up top. Um, these are all fascinating diseases. I will tell you that, that all of these diseases have multiple serotypes within given organisms, but there's also even multiple species. Like, for instance, Rocky Mountain spotted fever is part of a larger group of what are called rickettsial illnesses caused by bacteria in the genus Rickettsia. And it is, a, it is an interesting disease with different, um, different variants worldwide and different um, fatality rates as a result. Generally, even Rocky Mountain spotted fever, if not treated, has a, has a very high fatality rate. Um, we talked about in the last lecture tetracycline antibiotics like doxycycline and being contraindicated in kids. There are other options. I'm sure there would be a lot more options, but doxycycline works so well that, that there just haven't been good studies on other options. Um, but in general, since the courses are short, seven to ten days, if you do suspect one of these bad illnesses, even if it is a kid, a lot of, uh, a lot of major societies will still recommend using doxycycline uh, because of the dangers of the, the tick illness if not treated properly and the, the minimal risk for a short course of doxycycline. So, you know, if you get somebody with a, kid, uh, a tick and it's a kid and you're like, oh, I can't use doxycycline, you know, if you are really worried about it, I would probably just go ahead and treat and just explain the risk to tooths and bones and how we kind of have to do it because it's a worrisome thing. Tularemia is the one exception to the doxycycline covering all rule. Um, Generally, streptomycin or gentamicin are, are your first-line go-to agents for that. Tutheremia is pretty rare, but I have seen it. Um, you know, classically, you get them from, uh, uh, like, bunnies is always the exam question. The, the, uh, the guy, the maintenance guy was going on the lawnmower, and he ran over a bunny, and the, the bunny stuff went all over everywhere, and then he got tularemia. Anyway. <laughs> um, here's another question. 65-year-old guy comes to your office, just got back from Moab. He's got high fevers, chills, muscle aches, and then he shows you this. What do you guys think this is? And what should you use for it? Yes, perfect. Bubonic plague, Yersinia pestis, gram-negative rod, spread by fleas. You know, historically you hear rats, but now it seems like prairie dogs are kind of the main player in the game. Um, in the last hundred years in the U.S., there's been about a thousand cases. That's a very small amount, but that's not insignificant, especially when you think about a 16% fatality rate even with treatment, without greater than 50%. I mean, this is thought to be what killed, you know, a third or two-thirds or a bunch of people in Europe during the uh, Middle Ages. Um, the buboes are actually these painful, swollen, 
uh, necrotic lymph nodes, which appear in about 80% of cases. There are some other forms of plague, um, but most commonly bubonic is what you see. So the skin lesions are actually what, what are going to alert people in the majority of cases. Next question. You're on a ski trip in Sun Valley, Idaho. Your friend Max has not been feeling well. He says, I'm just tired. He tells you he saw some blood in his stool and his wrist hurts. You look down and see his leg. Two days later, the rash is worse. He states he noted a mark on his leg two weeks ago, but he thought it had gone away. So this is his leg on day one, and that's his leg two days later. What are you guys thinking about? Blood in the stool, swollen wrist. Yeah. What do you give him? Oh, sorry. I tried to press the button. Last question. Yes. So, HSP, IgA vasculitis. I've seen it actually a fair amount in kids. And it's much more common in kids. But adults get it too. And my friend Max get, decided to get it on a ski trip where we were just deciding to, you know, trying to have some fun. And it was worrisome because, you know, when you see a vasculitis like that, you don't necessarily know that it's HSP. It could be any number of worse or scarier vasculitides. And that's, that's, uh, that's bad. You know, you can ruin someone's kidneys as a result. Some people will say you don't necessarily have to treat for HSP in adults. Um, I would say if the rash looks really bad or if they're having other symptoms like blood in their stool, I would treat right away because there have been people whose kidneys have been ruined by HSP, especially in the adult population. Um, the reason I bring that last case up, and the reason I brought up multiple cases up this whole time that don't have to do with infection, is to kind of drive home the theme. I think that it's very likely that of this talk, you might remember one thing in a few months from now. And if you remember anything, I want it to be that the mountains are a very rough environment for the reasons we've talked about today. You're going to see an increase in infections but also an increase in several other dermatologic conditions. And when you have a patient that says, oh my gosh, we're going on this hike up into the mountains, let them know. Your eczema will likely get worse as you go up in elevation and it gets drier. I want you to know that and I want you to make sure you have your good strong cream with you to be ready to treat when it happens. People like that. People really respond to that like, man, you really saved me up there. I was just going to bring my normal um, low-strength steroid cream, and I ended up bringing the big guns, and I really needed it because things really flared when we got up there, and that would have ruined my trip. So remember that, and remember to let your patients know that, that these skin things are going to get worse, and to be careful about infections. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope some of this was helpful. Oh, man. I think clothing would be my answer for that. But I'm not, a, I'm not aware of, of um, 
of what other creams or options might be good for that, and I don't think I could speak intelligent about the, intelligently about that. I'm sorry. For a finger bite, I would inject the immunoglobulin right up into the bite on the finger, into, the, into any soft tissue you could find around there. And if you found that a lot of it was not going in because it wasn't a, a big enough area or something, I would inject it further up the tract of the bite. Because remember, that virus is going to follow, follow up and head up towards centrally, so more proximally. Pernio prevention, treatment advice for treating chronic sufferers. I am sorry, I actually cannot comment well on that. Um, but if, if need be, I can give my email, and I'm happy to look into that. Updates on Lyme vaccine. Man, I, vaccines are so awesome, and we are going to cure a lot of diseases for that. I don't have any updates on it. I'm sure it's very amenable to a vaccine. It's just, it's just still a rare enough disease that I don't know if it would be useful. I, I feel like a lot of people these days are calling they have, saying they have Lyme disease or chronic Lyme disease, and I just, have you guys heard that? Like, oh, I have chronic Lyme disease. Um, I'm at a loss for what that means. I know you can have sequelae if you have a bad Lyme disease infection that can carry on with you, but as far as chronic, quote, Lyme disease goes, this is a bacterial infection that's amenable to cure with antibiotics, so you can test a cure and get rid of it. Um, but as far as the updates on the vaccine, no, I'm sorry. Uh, specific suggestions for patients with Raynaud's or Chilblains who ski. Hand warmers. Um, or, or gloves with the warmers in them. Um, but basically just staying, keeping yourself as warm as you can and bundling up to, to use exposures. If people have bad, really bad Raynaud's, I mean, they can also try like a, a calcium channel blocker um, and that can sometimes open up blood to the periphery. Even people that just get really cold hands, like if it's cold enough to the point where it ruins your trip, you can actually try things like calcium channel blockers and those will... Uh, those will sometimes open up the blood flow more distally and allow you to feel better. But um, in general, staying warm, and if it gets bad, getting yourself out of the cold. Same for chillblains. Viagra? Or use Viagra. But be careful. <laughs> um, consider EpiPen and supply kit. So the EpiPen is a, is a good one, right? Because it, that's an extremely rare occurrence. But if you do have someone that goes into an anaphylactic reaction, it's, it's going to be really bad if you don't have a way to treat them, potentially and, and likely fatal. Um, when I put together the, the kit recommendations, I used the cutoff of 5%. There had to be at least five, at least the studies that we looked at had to report at least 5% of cases as being something for it to make the kit recommendation list. So, for instance, antibiotics for cellulitis was only 1% to 4%. So for a short trip, that didn't make the list. That being said, you would see on the, the slide for wilderness kits that people should always bring their home medications. So anyone with a personal history of anaphylaxis or allergies should certainly have an EpiPen with them when they hike. Um, but that's a good thought. And that kind of gets into that kit that I showed you, and I'm sorry if I didn't drive this home well enough, is a recommendation for a short trip. 
a two-day hiking trip in the mountains. It is not supposed to be for like an expedition length trip with multiple supplies and stuff. That's like your quick kit that you'd put in your pack for your quick two-day trip and it would cover most of the things you'd encounter. It's not going to be the all-encompassing, we're spending six weeks going down the, um, you know, the, a very large river, the Amazon, and we need several pieces of equipment with us. Oh, let's read the rest of it. Oh. House Iger's dog got into a nest. Really? It was a dog? Oh, that's sad. Yes, I don't, I don't disagree at all with that comment, though. If anyone you know is allergic or if you've had an allergic reaction to burning EpiPen, and I actually just, I just have, I've never had an allergic reaction, but I usually carry one with me too for that reason. So that's a good, good thought and, and good, good comment. Do you think insect repellent interferes with sunscreen SPF protection? Absolutely. Um, I usually put on my sunscreen first, and then I put on the insect repellent over the top, and I'm sure it does wash some off, but it's just, I mean, that's the game, as you guys know. More, more sunscreen, more sunscreen, more sunscreen. But I tell people, too, like, when you're outside and you're sweating and you're doing stuff, your sunscreen might last on there for 30 minutes. They're like, how did I get burned? I was using SPF 100. I'm like, well, it probably washed off in the first hour of the morning, and then the heat of the day came and you got burned. So keep putting in all day. But even better, you know, I think clothing. Um, clothing doesn't wash off. And if you're someone who burns, rely on clothes to keep you from burning your skin. Don't rely on sunscreen. That obviously doesn't work well with your face, but do what you can. Um, yes, I think uh, permethrin is really good for treating clothing. You can treat it as a wash cycle, and that's what I recommend to all people who um, are going on like a trip in a mosquito area. Um, but I douse my clothing. I, when I do bug spray, I cover everything. And it smells bad, and it, it doesn't make you feel great, but, you know, you're pretty gross anyway out there, so you just deal with it. Um, it's very close. I hike and camp with people who are at risk for MI. So you've got to be really careful about that. Um, I think the best thing I can say about that is you really want to screen people before you go out and make sure that you think they're healthy enough to deal with it. Um, if you are worried about somebody having an MI or having cardiac events when you're with you, obviously they're going to want to have all their cardiac meds with them. You're going to want to have aspirin with them in case you are worried about them having an MI. And you're going to want to have a good plan for getting them out and getting them help if there is an issue. That might be a person where a nice loop where you can cut the trip short if you need to is a good idea. Um, but yeah, it's, with chronic conditions in the outdoors, it's always really tough. And um, again, I still recommend it. Get them out there, have fun. You only have one life to live, but be careful. Any other questions? Thanks again, guys. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.